electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. We are going to watch that. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off this hour. Jim Stewart, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the New York Times, a CNBC contributor, the author of Deep State, Trump, the FBI, and the Rule of Law, is with us for the hour. It's great to have you, Jim. Good. Good uh, to be here. Futures are up on a holiday-shortened week. Closed Wednesday, obviously, for Christmas. A shortened session tomorrow. And we are going to watch this news, whatever it is, as it is halted uh, currently for news pending. Comes on the heels, guys, of this front page story in the Times today uh, titled Boeing's leader deepens a crisis, uh, which basically says a couple different things. One is that he was dressed down by the FAA chief earlier in the year, uh, told not to ask for any favors, and says that the halt of production of the MAX, in their words, is one of the most consequential decisions in the company's 103-year history. We don't know what this news is, Jim, but it probably wouldn't surprise many people if it involved Mullenberg's tenure. No, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, that story that reported uh, tensions between him and the, the head of the FAA, I mean, his top priority has got to be getting along with, charming, and sharing, I mean, totally transparent with the regulators. I would have thought that would have been crystal clear the day of the first crash. So how did it reach that juncture where he's, I mean, it's shocking to me that one of the things he says is, well, don't ask for any favors. Well, was he expecting him to ask favors? That is not a good situation to be in. And that's just one small way, part of the way this crisis has been handled for the last year, which, I mean, will be a business school textbook study. But one thing that has always struck me about this is that crisis management, the mantra I always heard was under-promise and over-deliver. And what has Boeing and Muhlenberg done? They have done the opposite from almost from the very beginning over-promising and under-delivering. I mean, more, more, more times than at this point I could even count. Oh, absolutely. And striking the comments by Gary Kelly, uh, Southwest CEO, who's been on air, critical of uh, the process here, talked about per- perhaps looking at Airbus airplanes in the future, but says uh, that the promises Boeing made in the spring, going back to April, that the return of the MAX was not a matter of months but weeks, and said that that overconfidence on the manufacturer's part really created havoc within his airline. And him going on the record is probably not a, not a mistake. No, uh, it, it is not. And as you said, we've talked directly to Mr. Kelly about his frustration at this point. And you know, you've had, as you again, Carl, these these stories both in the Journal and the Times, sort of detailing uh, the Journal story, very very specific in all the different uh, ins and outs of what's happened at Boeing. Uh, you know, I think it's safe to assume that Mr. Mullenberg will no longer be the CEO of this company. Uh, I guess I'll keep that in the realm of speculation based on what I know at this point, but I would say that it's very much informed speculation. But let's wait and see what the, what the, uh, what the news actually is. We will get it. Uh, my, my question would be certainly who would take over for Mr. Mullenberg. Will Mr. Calhoun, who really has been in many ways, as it's been described to me of late, 
um, been running the company, lack of a better term, or certainly very much involved in the day-to-day at this point as the, as the chairman of the board. Will he just add that, or are they going to have somebody else? Um, but I think it's safe to say that, uh, that we can expect Mr. Mullenberg will no longer be the CEO of the company. Well, one of the things that surprised me about this is not just that there was kind of a political failure. I mean, I've heard Mullenberg described as more of, of a technocrat, a, a kind of a you know, nuts and bolts kind of guy. So maybe you could imagine he wouldn't be that savvy to the politics of this, the public relations part of it. But what about the engineering? This is what has completely baffled me. I mean, the old 737 flew for decades without any significant problem. So they put this software thing on there that, you know, I guess it's supposed to be a safety feature. It causes two crashes. They say, oh, this is no big deal. We'll just fix the software. Why didn't we get a better understanding of, first of all, what was this device to begin with? How did it change the old system? How valuable is it? Nobody has even told me, why don't they just go back to the old thing? Take this thing off. I mean, people weren't, I don't think there were any crashes because of this. But in any event, we never got any explanation of this. And kind of waving it off like it's no big deal, that's a huge engineering failure. And that's what has dismayed me, I think, the most about Boeing throughout this crisis. Do we think uh, the Starliner uh, botched mission to the ISS, of course, just landed in New Mexico uh, in what they called a bullseye landing? Uh, But do you think that was compounding the problems from Muhlenberg? Because they've already let go of the head of the commercial aircraft division. David says uh, Calhoun's in there running things operationally, at least as a chairman. Right. Haven't they made enough management moves or, or not? Well, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak to the space thing. I mean, it's certainly terrible optics. The timing of this is terrible. But um, I wouldn't read too much into it. I mean, I don't know what the technical challenges were. Again, it was there was a lot of confidence expressed, maybe overconfidence. People were expecting something really good, and, and people thought, well, you're, they're going to be really scrutinizing this to make it sure it goes well, and then, then it didn't. I think that's, you know, embarrassing and it's bad, but I, it's not that big a part of the company. And again, I don't, I'm not enough of a technician to know how technically sophisticated these things are, but it could just be a relatively, you know, insignificant problem. Well, it's a, obviously it's a, it's a micro story from a, a news standpoint, but in a way it's a very much a macro story because of the impact on the overall economy, 600 suppliers for the plane, and then for the markets itself, we know what a heavy price foot that Boeing brings to the indices. Without a doubt, to the Dow, of course, as we say, given it's a price-weighted index as well, uh, something we point out a lot. But you're right, there's no other company that has the impact on the economy in the way that Boeing does, given the, the number of the, the number in terms of the exports and everything else. So uh, there is no doubt. I mean, 0.3% on GDP. Um, but we're getting the news now, Carl, my understanding is. So uh, let's, uh, yeah, he is uh, stepping down. Um, don't have any specifics beyond that. I'm looking right now. I don't know, Carl, if that you do in terms of who's taking over. That's been really one of the key questions. Could you possibly look outside? Will Calhoun simply take oh, over here. in the time being? So what have you got? Calhoun yeah. will be named uh, president and CEO. Yeah. This is uh, according to a release out of Boeing right now. Yeah. Uh, board of directors has named the current chairman, David Calhoun, as CEO and president effective January 13th of next year. Will remain on the board. And uh, Lawrence Kellner will become non-executive chair. David, I'm sure you see it by now. Yeah, I do. Uh, so it, it, as anticipated, I mean, listen, we've been talking about Mr. Mullenberg and the, what seemed to be the, almost the impossibility of him staying at, at the company. Some, Jim, had wondered why he's been there already through this. 
uh, this long. At the same time, you sort of always wonder when the best time for a transition like this would occur. The idea of going outside, many people had said, seemed to be something that would not necessarily be in the best interest of the company. Calhoun's been in there, as I said, very much a strong hand of late, and so not a surprise that he would be the one to step in at this point in terms of the company's CEO. Well, one thing we don't really know is what Muhlenberg has been telling the board all along. And if he was telling the board the same things he was telling the public, which I assume is true, you can understand that at least initially they would have thought, well, obviously we should stay with him, this isn't such a big deal, we'll solve the problem. But I... What, again, I find somewhat surprising is it took so long for the credibility gaps to begin to appear between the board and him. I mean, there have been a lot of misstatements, over-promises, under-delivering uh, now almost over an entire year. Um, so it doesn't surprise me the board would have, you know, come to this conclusion. My, again, I agree. It's, it's surprising they didn't do it right, By the way, we should make clear uh, that Mullenberg is out effective Imme- now. Immediately. This is, they're not going to wait. Uh, the CFO, Greg Smith, will serve as interim CEO during transition. And, you know, we always sort of look between the lines on these news releases, but there is no uh, well-wishing of Mullenberg uh, in terms of quotations from Calhoun no. or Kellner. Or Kellner. Well, that's pretty, yeah, that's it pretty is. striking. Yeah. They, all they're talking about is being pleased that uh, Mr. Calhoun has agreed to lead Boeing. Um, and um, that they look forward to working, that they look forward to working with him. Uh, yeah, your point's well taken, uh, Carl. There's no. Usually, there's that paragraph thanking somebody for their service and uh, wishing them well. That does not. That is not the case. And so Mullenberg's no longer the CEO uh, of uh, of Boeing. Uh, Mr. Calhoun will take over on the 13th. Not sure about that interregnum. Why? Why they need three week, weeks there? Uh, and Mr. Smith will be the interim. Well, I think another point that you made is that, that Boeing sits at the center of a huge economic ecosystem. And you can imagine the calls the Boeing directors have been getting from the suppliers, like the fuselage maker who's now sitting in, in Wichita with you know, a field full of undelivered and, and looking at 50% of their revenue going down the drain, or the commercial airlines who you know, have been in such trouble. I mean, critical, loyal customers. And if I was any of those, I would have been on the phone to the board with some pretty pointed comments. Uh, It takes news like this to bring uh, Jim Cramer to the phone on vacation. Jim, uh, (laughs) it's good to talk to you this morning along with uh, your friend Jim and, of course, David and me. What do you think about this? Let's just start there. Well, I think that there may have been one of these situations where it was impossible to get clearance with all these different entities as long as he was there because he presided over what happened. And I don't think that... uh, Somebody has to be held accountable. It's going to be the top guy. Boeing is an honest, great company. And they're not going to let other people. I mean, they did have these underlings that left. And I think a lot of us kind of felt like, wait a second. I mean, how about the top guy? And I know David has been, uh, I'd say, uh, insistent in asking me whether I thought he was going to have to go. And I've said no comment. But, in fact, someone had to pay the price. And it has to be him. I'm glad that Greg is hanging on, because Greg was the guy who was running it day-to-day, running the investigation part, and he's a terrific guy, and I think he actually has a lot more loyalty. There's more loyalty to him than there is to Dennis. Um, Calhoun is taking over, Jim, uh, which, again, I don't think is that much of a surprise, at least given what you know I've been hearing of late, and I assume you have as well. Uh, it's not an interim role either. Uh, Mr. Smith no, no. is going to be the interim CEO for three weeks for whatever reason. <laughs> Calhoun is not actually taking over as CEO until uh, until the 13th of January, and Kellner will become chairman. Well, I've got to tell you, I think Calhoun, as we all know, was 
we thought that he, it was very difficult to imagine him not being CEO's yet. Uh, and this will be very good. You simply had to get Mullenberg out to get this process going. I don't think anyone wanted to deal with him that first day that he appeared in front of Congress was a disaster. And I think people never forget that. I mean, when, he had to, when they asked him about his pay package, and he, he said it was up to the board? I mean, come on. I mean, no, it's up to you. Be human. And I think that this was a, a natural response, and I think now the process is going to really happen. I think that, that it's going to accelerate whatever is going to happen. I think people will realize this plane is going to be in the air someday. But I just don't think that uh, Dennis is going to get to the promised land. Yeah, Jim, you're, to your point, uh, Calhoun's quote here, I strongly believe in the future of Boeing and the 737 MAX. Uh, it does not look like they have any uh, questions long-term about the viability of the model, uh, notwithstanding whatever engineering changes they need to make. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that they're, they're steadfast. I think that the, look, all the air, everyone's got a lot invested in this plane. And you basically have to reinvent the plane. That was another thing that really bothered me about what Dennis was doing. I mean, why, why not ever just come out and say, you know what? We didn't make enough redundancies in this plane. We screwed up. It was bad. We thought it was safe. It's certainly safer than any other plane. But you know what? We should have had a third redundancy. And that's what the, you know, people say, well, why is it taking so long? Well, I mean, you know, you're rebuilding a plane. It's not a, you know, they keep thinking it's not a software change. They have to rebuild this plane. The plane did not have enough redundancy. We mentioned the, the Times piece this morning, uh, Jim, at the top of the hour, and these quotes from Gary Kelly, whom, as you know, has talked to us repeatedly about this process. Um, by the time April rolled around, Boeing was telling us next week, next month, we were a week away, weeks away, three weeks away. It was really creating havoc. That's about as gra granular a look as we've gotten uh, in terms of the relationship between Boeing and its customers. Well, I mean, I went back to the April release. If you go back to the, their April release, they were pretty certain this thing would be in the air uh, momentarily. I don't know how they got that. They were dreaming. I do not know how they got that. And I, you have to believe that it was Dennis that was telling everybody it was going to be fine. I mean, there was even at the end when they made the projection for 2020, you, know, you, you would speak to them and say, listen, don't worry, don't worry. And, you know, everyone was worried except for, except for Dennis. So we do we think the dividend question has been answered, or does that change now with this news? Uh, well, I think that the look, they got to get this thing in the air. The cash flow is the, the cash flow wasn't bad in the last quarter, but that wasn't really emblematic. I think that I think they've look. I want to hear what Calhoun says, and I want to hear what, what someone someone who does not have anything to do with what occurred, because I think we all know that cash flow is not a, a really prudent person would not necessarily let that dividend stay at this level. Jim, stay right there. Uh, let's bring in Phil LeBeau. Uh, Phil, we're all, I'm at least reminded of your interview with Muhlenberg in the Hill, halls of Congress uh, just prior to his testimony. And uh, although he wasn't expecting to take questions at the time, you did ask him about his tenure. Did you ever see this coming? Uh, I was not surprised when I heard the news this morning when my producer, uh, I'm on vacation like Jim, and my producer called me. She said, news pending, and I said, I bet you it's Dennis not being a CEO anymore. I do have a little bit of color from talking with some folks uh, at Boeing. This was a decision of the board. This was not Dennis Mullenberg saying, look, things are rough, and I'm maybe not the right person to lead this. He was fired. This was the board saying, enough. 
we have got to move in a new direction. They deliberated over the weekend before they reached the decision uh, last night. Uh, there was a, a phone call that the board held uh, to reach that consensus uh, last night when they decided that they were going to go in a different uh, direction with David Calhoun uh, coming in as president and CEO starting effective January 1st. I know there are some people who are going to 13th. say, well, why doesn't you just start right now? Um, that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. Um, it's not like three weeks are going to kill anybody, uh, but at the same time, this is a company that's in crisis. So that's one of the questions that will be asked, along with the dividend question. Um, we are not expecting to hear from David Calhoun or from Greg Smith or any of the other uh, Boeing executives or board members today. My sense is that that's going to be happening in relatively short order, though, in some fashion. And I know we hear from David Calhoun uh, in the uh, release from the company. But the, to answer your, your first question, Carl, I was not surprised. Um, this was increasingly a company where they were not managing this crisis. The crisis was managing them. And at some point, the accountability has to go to the CEO. And I know there will be some people who say this is way too long in coming, should have happened sooner. Uh, but this was a, a crisis that was poorly handled, poorly managed from the beginning. And ultimately, uh, Dennis Mullenberg has to take the ball for that. Uh, Phil, it's David. Um, tell us a bit about Calhoun. You obviously uh, conducted a long interview with him uh, not that long ago. You know, I've been hearing, and I know you are much closer to it as well, that he's certainly been very much hands-on uh, as the company's chairman. Uh, what can we expect here in terms of his leadership? He's taking over January 13th, uh, and obviously it's not an interim designation. He is going to be the company's uh, CEO and president. I would say the biggest thing that you will notice, and his influence is already seen in the decision that was made after uh, Dennis Mullenberg met with the head of the FAA last week, where they withdrew any kind of a timeline for getting the MAX back in the air, that's going to be the influence of David Calhoun. I, I think he has watched this, and he has said, no, 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 you cannot, you cannot continually say we're going to have it up by this date. We're getting there. We're making steady progress. Uh, I think his approach is going to be get it fixed, get it right, and when it's ready, then we go. Until then, nothing is served by continually giving the streets, uh, your customers, the airlines, this sense that, uh, hey, the plane is going to be fine. And remember, guys, you know, you will hear airlines set these dates and they continue to move them back. Some of that is based on discussions with Boeing. The other part of that is they have continually moved these back uh, at two-month, three-month increments because they have got to set their pilot schedules. And you just can't go open-ended. You just can't say, well, I'm never, we don't know what the schedule is going to be for this plane. So you've got to set that schedule two or three months down the road. Um, I, I suspect that that, to an extent, will continue until we get some definitive word from David Calhoun and the rest of the leadership at Boeing. This is what we're going to do. And by the way, Stan Deal, who now runs commercial airplanes and has uh, for some time since Kevin McAllister was fired, He's in lockstep with Calhoun in terms of style and approach. Very much a detail-oriented, I'm not here for the conversations or for the public statements. I'm here to get this done. Uh, so I think they'll work well together. Hey, Phil, I, got one, I want to get to Jim, because uh, as the stock has now resumed trading up almost 2% here. But one question for you, Phil. Do you have an answer as to why they seem to overpromise repeatedly the return to service? Do we know in, internally... What they're th Did they honestly believe this? Were they trying to cover for something else? Uh, because we've talked so long about the value of uh, obviously un over uh, under-promising and over-delivering. 
I think they were overconfident in their ability uh, as engineers to engineer their way out of this problem. And one of the things that I'm reminded of, Carl, is very early on, there was a briefing out in Renton of, here is the problem, um, and we're going to explain to you what we're doing, but we don't want the cameras rolling during the explanation. A little odd, but all the reporters who were there, we accepted it. You, you, you had to accept it, and immediately questions started coming. Look, I'm not an aerospace engineer, but I was asking questions, as were other reporters, that were basic questions, and it was clear. They were like, well, we'll get an answer for that, and we think we know what we're doing, and it, it, that was the very first instance where you sat there and you said, no, 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 you, you, you can't just engineer your way out of this. You have got to handle some of the most basic questions on this, and I think that gets to the broader issue is the culture at Boeing Commercial Airplane. Great company, great engineers, but in this case, they over or they they relied too much on their belief that their engineering could work their way out of this problem. Jim, how about the price action here? Three thirty-six. Well, I, I think that it makes sense. Phil, so right. I mean, anybody who was trying to follow this period, you never knew. They were always one step up. They were always one step behind the posse. You never ever. You pick up the paper. And, and there, there would be something. And, and you'd call up and say, like, guys, you need this. Why didn't you tell me? You need this. Why didn't you tell me? And no matter what you did, they just did never, they never seemed to know the news flow. They were very unprofessional about it. And the only thing I can say is that I would, you know, the stock is actually worth more without Dennis than with, if only just because maybe the headline surprise factor is over. This could be, it's, look, it's a crisis. But there is crisis management that can be done. There are professionals who know how to handle crises, particularly with journalism, but also with the analysts. And these guys didn't have it. And it was really unbelievable. Like, you would, like, you'd wake up and say, hey, guys, why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't you tell me the Times was going to do this? Why didn't you tell me the journal? Why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't you tell me that? They had no control of this thing. And it was just, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Hey, uh, Phil, you're still there, right? It's David. <laughs> We've uh, the only feedback I'm getting thus far in terms of why the little bit of a of a gap between now and the 13th. Apparently, Calhoun has some other non-Boeing related commitments he needs to uh, fulfill and make sure he sort of squares away before he takes over as full time, of course, as the company's uh, CEO uh, and president. But Phil, you know, there also is this sense that I've certainly been hearing, and I know you have as well, that you know Mullenberg has been focused on the return to service. The suspension, obviously, from last week was a big deal and something he'd been focused on. But the board sort of felt like, okay, he's dealt with that. And Calhoun's feedback from customers and regulators was he cannot continue uh, as the CEO. I assume you sort of heard similar. Yeah, yeah. And and this feeds into what, and I know you and I and, and, and Jim and I and Carl, we've discussed this before, whether or not there is a residual impact of the max prices. You bet there is. Take a look at what's happened with the 777X. Take a look at what's happened with the newest plane that has been essentially shelved for a while, what they call the middle-of-the-market airplane. They were supposed to introduce it in Paris. They didn't, obviously, because they were focused on the MAX. What happens? Airbus comes out with the A321XLR. They start racking up orders. Not just little orders, substantial orders. The most recent of note being three weeks ago when United Airlines says, we want that airplane. We want 50 of the A321 XLR. 
Boeing's middle-of-the-market airplane remains on the drawing board. And who knows if we'll see it by the time that the Farnborough Air Show comes up in, in July. But one thing is clear. They were not in the process of saying, what's next? What's on the horizon? They are one step behind the competition right now. And that is something that is completely unacceptable in Boeing's world. Completely unacceptable. And I think the board finally said, we have got to, it is time to move forward and become much more aggressive in terms of our planning, working our way out of this crisis, working our way back into a better standing with our customers. Jim Stewart, I wonder if you think uh, there'll be a revisitation of discussion of Muhlenberg's comp. Are we going to be looking at renewed calls for clawbacks? Well, there, there certainly should be. I mean, after a performance like this, I was also want to say something Jim Cramer mentioned that, um, you know, these crises are not a new thing. It's not like Boeing really had to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, the fact, specific facts may be new, but this kind of problem, there are experts, many people have dealt with it. And I've been sort of stunned all along the way that the model they seem to have followed was the Wells Fargo model. Again, a great company, a great brand name, and had the Warren Buffett stamp on it. Everybody thought this is like the state-of-the-art banking thing. And suddenly, I mean, after a horrible performance in front of Congress and after, you know, revealing you know, all the customer problems, it dawned on people that the culture had significantly changed without anyone realizing it and that the rot had really spread from the top way, way down. Now, I hope that is not the case here. I think Boeing is a great company, has a great history, engineering prowess that is, you know, pride of the United States all these years. But again, I have to wonder, what are we going to find out now? I mean, the Maybe it's not just this one software thing. Again, this delays in the new plane implementing, but there is a, in the background of all this has been this disturbing idea, to me anyway, that they were managing Boeing like any other company. Like, how can we squeeze more profitable? How can we speed this stuff up? How can we cut costs? Boeing is a unique company. It is a consumer-facing company. It's an industry-facing company. It's a public, regulatory issues. People's lives are at stake every time one of those things takes off. It can't be about profit first. It has got to be about quality first. Not to first. mention it's part of a duopoly where you'd think the pressures are not as great on it because it's not going to lose market share conceivably, or not certainly over any short period of time. Right. And, I mean, and yet that was a surprise, I think, from that's, again, that's ex extraordinary that they should be taking the long-term view. It is right. a duopoly. They can afford to let the profit margins go down a little bit in the long-term interests of shareholders and the, and the health of the company. And I don't, I just am astonished that they lost that sort of fundamental outlook under Muhlenberg. Well, J Jim Cramer, uh, if, if Jim Stewart is right and some new facts get shaken loose by Muhlenberg's exit, I wonder if you think there will be longer-term implications on the order book, or at least on pricing. I think there will be. I thought Boeing should have survived. It's a great company. But Jim's right. I mean, one of the things that, and I know Phil has been talking about this too, but one of the things that kept happening, you pick up the paper and there would be a very high-level engineer who would have sent something to Mullenberg saying, look, we cannot cut costs like this. We cannot do this. We're and then you would call Boeing and Boeing would be like, don't worry about it. And be like, then there'd be another one. like, you know what? We have been trying to cut back and say, I don't want to work here anymore. But, and you kept us on Don't worry about it. I mean, I have never been told don't worry about it more in my life than from Boeing. And I got to tell you, I am really worried about it because these guys are masters at telling you don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. Phil, I know you have to leave uh, in just a couple of moments here, but I don't know. Do you want to put a coat on this and tell us what we should be looking for in the weeks ahead? I bet you you have a relatively quiet week or two here 
from uh, David Calhoun. doesn't mean he's not engaged. He clearly is engaged. Uh, he'll be even more engaged. But in terms of a public um, statement, I think that uh, he, at some point, maybe early January, will say, okay, let me, let me give you some sense of where we are going. We will not get a timeline from him when he sits and talks with us, uh, me or other reporters, uh, but you will see a definitive shift, a definitive shift in how Boeing approaches not only this crisis, but how the company is going to be operated going forward. It'll be much more uh, clear that there is going to be accountability, that there is going to be um, a much greater rigor, if that makes sense, when it comes to not only engineering, uh, but decisions, working with customers, et cetera. Our Phil Lebeau, whose vacation I think might be a little bit short uh, this morning. Phil, I think we'll see you later on today. Uh, thank you. You will. Phil Lebeau. I think Jim's going to stick around for a few moments here as we get closer to the opening bell. Uh, more broadly, Jim, does, is this a signal that we should be on the lookout for some tape bombs in this uh, holiday-shortened week? Jeez, i got to tell you, this was certainly, well, let's put it this way. It can't be possibly as bad as last year when we had the Powell Bear Market. Which was, centered, which was centered around my five days in Costa Rica. It won't be like that. It can't possibly be as bad as last year. Uh, this news actually is probably going to be welcomed by a lot of people who've been buying Boeing stock. I think knowing that there was going to be a change. I think we just didn't know the time frame. And you, what's funny is someone, just like what Philip said, someone who just says, okay, look, whatever we were doing here, we have to have an actual investigation internally about what went on. And a lot of us were shocked that they Boeing never said, all right, full stop, let's find out what happened. Shut down everything. It's going to cost us, I don't know, $5 billion. And if we have to, we will spend the dividends. But we are not going to sacrifice anything, uh, no sacrifice to safety. We're tired of hearing that we are taking shortcuts. Because that's what I think people felt they were doing. They never did the full stop shutdown. They never hired the price managers. They never gave us any sense about what was going to happen. Jim, our thanks to you, uh, Jim Kramer. If you missed the news about half an hour ago, uh, Dennis Mullenberg of Boeing is out. Uh, David Calhoun is CEO and president, effective January 13th. And Mullenberg's exit is effective immediately as the fallout from the 737 max continues. There's the opening bell and the S&P 500 at the CNBC Real-Time Exchange at the big board. It's the New York chapter of the National Children's Chorus. You might have heard them singing in the background as we were talking some Boeing at the NASDAQ, the National Women's Hockey League. Well, David, our Monday morning got started with a bang. Yes, right. yes, we got uh, we got some significant news. And again, as I think Phil and Jim and I had indicated, it's not a surprise. The timing really was the only question many of us had in terms of when Mr. Mullenberg would exit Boeing, not necessarily uh, whether or not it would happen. Um, it is termed a resignation, but obviously he was dismissed, as Phil said, and as I can tell you as well by the board in a decision they reached last night, although one that they had certainly been moving towards for quite some time, it would appear. And in part, the timing, I'm told at least, was due to the fact that they feel as though Mullenberg's sort of checklist of things in terms of the dealing with the return to service uh, as his focus and the suspension of, uh, of manufacturing of the airplane, those were kind of the key things that he had been dealing with. 
They have been dealt with, at least to some extent. Uh, and Mr. Calhoun's discussions with regulators and customers made it clear to the board, at least. And remember, he was the chairman um, of that board that Mullenberg had to go. So he's gone. Calhoun is in. You heard Phil discussing what we can expect from him when he takes over January 13th. Uh, and Boeing shares are, uh, are starting the day higher. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the chairman divided CEO role that was taken away from him. I mean, this was, I think, healthy for the company because suddenly you have an independent chairman. You have an independent information flow. When there's a combined CEO and chairman, you don't have that. The same person is hearing from everyone, which is why, frankly, a lot of CEOs do not want to give up the chairman job. This is a case study why you have it. Right. That's a great point, I think, as well. It wasn't that long ago that that was the case, of course, and Calhoun was, as you say, Jim, another sort of set of eyes and ears and very much focused. And in recent weeks, I've been told, also really involved in the nuts and bolts of the company uh, beyond what you typically see for a chairman. Would it surprise you if, if, if we're ass- assessing this as a clean slate, right? Calhoun has a tabula rasa to come back in. Would you expect further delays to return to service, maybe a second half story? Would that surprise you? Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, I think, again, he's got to shift to this. We've got to start beating expectations as opposed to disappointing them. If it was me, I would want some breathing room. I would want the time. And most of all, to make sure that we really do this right, that Boeing does it right. And that there, I would say no more additional delays. Once I say it's going to happen, it's got to happen. Uh, a lot of that's contingent on regulators and so forth. Uh, right, and, so yeah. make sure they're on board with whatever you're going to say. Again, it's, it sounds like the regulators were surprised and shocked by some of the things that Eulenberg said. That should never happen. He shouldn't have said a word without the regulators already knowing what he was going to say. Uh, Boeing, of course, uh, given the price action now, is adding about 70 points. Uh, it's the t- top-performing Dow component on this uh, morning, followed by 3M, which, as we get to some other stories here, does get up to uh, at J.P. Morgan to neutral. Uh, they go 143 to 150, one of those names that uh, has disappointed pretty much all year long amid pressures on global trade. But I wonder if you feel like 2020 is going to feel different from a trade standpoint. Well, um Look, we're getting promising signs out of China. That's been, that's been the big news in, in the past year. And China, of the, all the trading partners we're dealing with, is the biggest one. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic about that. The problem now is expectations have shifted so much that there is risk of, of down surprise, a big surprise on the downside. Meanwhile, we've got some kind of trade war going on with Latin America. I don't know how significant that is going to be. And I think people didn't pay much attention, but just a couple weeks ago, the U.S. threatened to drastically lift tariffs on Europe again, moving like to 100% on a lot of these products. I mean, Trump, on the one hand, is saying, oh, he wants this glorious free trade deal with Boris Johnson. But at the same time, we're saying, no, no, we're going to, like, ratchet up all these things, especially France, UK, the, the, again, talking about Airbus, uh, that's part related to that. But, you know, we're getting some more friction in the Europe area. So I'm not at all confident that uh, at least for the first half of the year, these trade things are going to go away. Losers this morning at the, at the open, at least, are <coughs> centered around media uh, as Disney's but- Rise of Skywalker is the lowest grossing open uh, among the last three Star Wars films, 20% down from Last Jedi, uh, on a day where we we learned that 34% of total box office, 39 maybe, is the top 10 films. Like, it's becoming the fang, as someone said, of the box office. 
Mark? Well, one thing that worries me, having written about Disney over many years and also watched the entertainment industry for so many years, is that you know everybody thinks Disney has the silver bullet, which is the big tentpole, high-budget franchise film, and it has worked fantastically well for them. But I can remember other cycles where people thought they had the silver bullet. There was the Eisner era with the famous singles and doubles, you know, Beverly Hills Cops and all of that. That was the formula. They had like 19 profitable movies in a row. And people said, okay, they've, they've solved the mystery. They've got it all down. It just makes me nervous that none of these formulas last forever. And a lot of this intellectual property, let's face it, it is... It's aging. I mean, how many Star Wars things can you squeeze out of this? I mean, a lot. I don't mean to take away from it. I mean, it still made a lot of money, but I think that's what investors are getting nervous about. Um, yeah, it's worth noting Netflix is also down this morning. Again, neither one is down a great deal. I mean, though, Disney does have so many of those tentpole franchises, Jim. It's not They've just Star Wars. Year. I mean, Marvel's going to have endless, they have endless stories to mine there, and they've obviously had the highest grossing films of all time amongst any number of their new entrants or entrants in the last year or two. Um, and Disney Plus, it's hard to find somebody who doesn't think that it's going to be and hasn't already become a success, given the numbers that they've gotten early on. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that what remains to be seen is where are the, where are the profit margins going to settle in this streaming universe? I mean, you look at Netflix and, you know, you don't see, you don't see the, um, you know, the pot of gold at the end of that particular rainbow yet. I mean, in theory, there's going to be a finite number of these and they'll have enough market power they can begin to raise prices and come up with some, you know, pretty good margins. But is it ever going to replicate the cable model? Oh, my God. That, I mean, that, that thing, those margins were so phenomenally great. I don't think anyone thinks so. And I mean, that's not to criticize Disney for making the move, because the cable model is not going to last. No, it's not. Now, and that same- was a domestic model. And, I, you know, when I talked to the likes of John Malone about that, he'll admit, as, as we all know, that was a unique thing for 20, 25 years. Right. Where you basically have people paying for you and not actually watching. And you're also benefiting from advertising. However, the only offset to that is the global scale that you can conceivably have with streaming that you didn't have, obviously, in the domestic cable distribution model that we all live with for so long. And Netflix, we all know, is all about foreign subscriptions. It's no longer about their domestic growth. The question is whether Disney's going to actually hurt market share for them here. But it's not about whether or not they're going to grow significantly domestically any longer. Right. I mean, I I do think if you're a long-term investor, you bet on this, that it's going to take time the way Amazon has taken time. But there will someday be a world of a finite number of streaming programmers. The barriers to entry are going to be quite high. Once you've got these things and you're used to going on to them, however many, it's going to be five, six, you know, I don't know what it will be. Well, that's the key. We don't know how many. We don't know yet. But then, then, you know, then you've got, you know, a finite number of providers here and they can start raising prices a little bit, seeing the price sensitivity, and the margins could get up there to be fairly healthy. Yeah. But you've got to take a long-term view. I mean, people seem to be giving Netflix a benefit of the doubt, and I think Disney has has been really smart to start trying to get that multiple on on their stock. But let's face it, it's going to take a long time before we know the answers. Without a doubt. And Iger will no longer be the CEO when those answers start to come in, which will also be interesting. He can go out on his white horse. Yes, he will. 
Jim, we're just going to hop from story to story that you've covered because Tesla, fresh all-time high this morning, I think uh, 416, 415. As uh, Reuters says that they um, are getting a loan from some Chinese banks, about $1.4 billion to finance their Shanghai factory. I wonder what you think of the turn this stock has done in the last sec- well, six months. It's phenomenal. I, I mean, first of all, I'm happy about it because I think that Tesla is a great product and it's, it's beautiful, it's innovative, its quality seems to be extraordinarily high. But what we had for a period were these antics, if that's what you want to call of it, of the chief executive. And again, again, we're talking about splitting the CEO chairman. They got a, a separate chairman. And I don't know if this is the answer, but somebody has kept Elon Musk off the front pages for his behavior and on the front pages for the achievements of the company. He's back on his game. He hasn't been sending out crazy tweets. Uh, there haven't been you know, ridiculous stories about his personal life. I don't know what accounts for it, but it's healthy. I mean, again, I just hope it can continue. You were, when you wrote, you, you sort of were right in there when he seemed to be a man on the edge he when was, you were doing a lot of your reporting. And I he believe kinda, he was a man on the edge. He got kind of pulled back. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it took. And good for him because sometimes those things are, can be personally very challenging. And he was in a situation where nobody ever said anything he didn't want to hear. And yet the company, and he in particular, seemed to be going off the rails. I think that was what's so frightening about it. And again, it's not an air comp- aircraft company, but a car, too, is something. You, your safety is at stake in there. You don't, you don't want to feel that some crazy person is running the operation. You want somebody, not necessarily sober. I love his flair. He's got a great sense of theatricality. He tells a great story. Those are all strengths. But to couple that with behavior that just left everybody kind of scratching their heads and worrying that... He was losing control. That that was terrible for the company because it affects consumer attitudes. But good for him. I think it has stabilized. He's come up with some great sales numbers. Product quality has been very, very high. And, it, I mean, the stock, when last time I looked, has just been, if you bought it at that bottom, lows. I mean, oh, my yeah. God. I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost incredible. approximating now the, the returns of the S&P over the course of the year, and there was a point at which it was down so sharply. I uh, still can't keep a general counsel, though, for whatever reason. That, that has <laughs> well, been beyond his abilities. Stability in the management ranks would also be yeah. a big plus yes. there. We'll, yes. we'll see. I don't, I, he's, he's never been an easy person to work for, and I'm not sure that's going to change anytime <laughs> soon. Um, we're joined uh, for some more color this morning uh, on Boeing by Leslie Josephs, uh, our CNBC airline reporter. Uh, Leslie, what, what do you think we can add to the story we already know? Well, I think a big question is kind of what took so long, because Mullenberg has been under pressure for a very long time. The question was, when are you going to resign? When are you going to resign? And I think now we finally have our answer. Uh, He's been under fire from airline executives whose compensation from this crisis is growing every day and now seems it's going to continue into uh, well into 2020, possibly into next summer. Um, The the victims of the families, I was just down in Washington a few weeks ago, they have wanted him out for a really long time. And it's a question of how does Boeing best regain trust of the actual public who's going to be flying these planes. Do we have a read yet as how as to how they're going to market it? Would you be surprised if uh, there's a name change of the model or, I don't know, anything that the market has not really started to price in? Uh, I mean, that's been talked about before. I, it's not even clear what they're going to go through with because they don't even have the FAA's approval yet. Even if they do that, it's going to be Boeing's best-selling aircraft. It's not really something that you can hide with a name change. The plane is going to be coming back, and airlines are going to be very transparent, as they told us, uh, with passengers that this is the plane. So even if you were to change those three little letters, the MAX, people are going to know what, what they're flying. Any idea about Calhoun and what we can expect from him? 
Um, well, he has some aircraft experience before. I mean, he's a, a former GE executive on the aviation side. He has plenty of experience with crises before. Um, so the market should probably like this because this is someone who's essentially being sentenced to clean up a mess. Yeah, longtime Blackstone as well. Worked yes. closely with uh, Steve Schwartzman over there, we should add as well. I know Schwartzman's got a lot of good things to say about Calhoun. Yeah, I think he's got a good resume. I think the, one of the reasons the stock is up probably is that investors are going to be happy with that. He's got enough of the technical expertise, got a very sophisticated financial background. But I think what will be most important to him is being able to communicate, being able to kind of sell the idea that quality is our most important thing and we're going to do everything we can to make sure we adhere to that. Really quickly, uh, Calhoun spoke to Squawk Box back in November about this very issue. I want to listen to that piece of tape and then ask Leslie something really quick. From the vantage point of our board, Dennis has done everything right um, from the beginning. From the beginning. Remember, Dennis didn't, didn't create this problem. But from the beginning, um, he knew that MCAS should and could be done better. And he has led a program to rewrite MCAS to alleviate all of those conditions that uh, ultimately uh, beset two unfortunate crews and the families and victims. All right, so I guess, uh, Leslie, impact on suppliers? Uh, how closely are you watching that? And if this is delayed even further, I wonder uh, how much damage, uh, what their strategy is, whether or not there's a story out today about GE trying to make some headway on the Airbus front if, in fact, they're going to be facing longer delays on the Boeing side. Yeah, GE has that advantage in that it is a supplier also to Airbus. Uh, we've already seen a fallout from suppliers. Uh, Spirit Aerosystems, which makes the fuselages for the 737, had long continued to make these uh, the fuselages even though the Boeing had halted deliveries and the, and the planes were actually piling up at its facilities, but now they're going to have to do something similar. Uh, so there's going to be an impact pretty much throughout the entire economy. The bigger impact is also on some of the smaller suppliers. Maybe they don't have the same uh, cash cushion that a, a big supplier like Spirit has. So as you go further and further down the chain, that's when that's you see a, a bit more uh, pain. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, it's no accident President Trump actually called Muhlenberg last week to talk about the shutdown and what it meant. I mean, it, the, the fact that this problem penetrated the Oval Office, I think, is a measure of how significant it is to the broad economy and the threat that a prolonged shutdown would pose for it. Oh, yeah, and uh, the Times piece again, referencing that this morning, talks about the call, the reassurance that Muhlenberg gave to the president in the early innings of this whole saga, that it was going to be fine and, and not last long. Yeah, I don't care what he told him. It's never a good sign when the president calls you after you've had to announce bad news like that. I mean, that is not a positive. Um, so we'll see how the gains uh, are sustained here today regarding Boeing. And as we said, adding about 75 points to the Dow overall. Leslie, I'll just give you one more chance uh, to add anything else you think we need to watch, whether it involves Muhlenberg specifically in his future or any further shakeout in details that may come now that his exit has been announced. I think we need to see what Calhoun does and whether he's able to calm down, calm down suppliers and, of course, those very important airline customers, and, and they want those planes. We saw United pull these planes until June, and that's a really long time. The second and third quarters, <laughs> is, that's when airlines, that's their, their peak revenue period. So they want these planes, and they want, them, they want them soon, and they want some reassurance from Calhoun, and they want to see how Calhoun interacts with the FAA. Mullenberg has already been dressed down by, by federal officials, and, and I think they want to smooth that over now. 
Leslie, thank you. Uh, great stuff. Leslie Joseph's covering uh, Boeing for us alongside our own uh, Phil LeBeau. JD.com. Uh, I'm rallying a bit here on this uh, report out of Reuters that the logistics unit is in talk for another overseas IPO, perhaps. See that? I, I yeah. did, yeah, uh, which would be interesting, of course. You know, sometimes we forget, we focus here on Alibaba, but there have been any number of other Chinese companies, and this is one of them that have done very well. Of course, Tencent is not a stock that trades here. It is still one of the largest, if not the largest, single uh, a giant in, in China. And then there's also been uh, reports about ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, moving its, uh, potentially moving its um, headquarters to another country out of China to try to somehow get itself out of a potential regulatory morass when it comes to the U.S. market. Unclear whether that will actually help, but it's interesting. That is not a public company, but it is a value at least, of, I'm told, at least $75 billion, if not more. The daily users that they have, Carl, keep growing, and they are in the billion, uh, over a billion, I think a billion and a half, some crazy numbers for TikTok. Uh, Times had this great special section on the decade in tech over the weekend, and one of the milestones really of the decade was TikTok's uh, creation, along with YouTube's first billion-hour day and the day Walt Mossberg first laid eyes on the iPad. Uh, Tim Cook taking over for Steve Jobs. Interesting look at where tech has been over the last ten. Well, it's, it's been a it's been a phenomenal decade. It's been a, it's been a great one for tech investors too. It's like these innovations have come with a lot of wealth creation, value creation. Speaking yes, it's not too early to start talking about the big moves of the year, so to speak, or stories of the year. And certainly, Apple's performance this year in the stock market is one of them, Jim. It's it's approaching an eighty percent gain. Year to date, its market value is now one and uh, a quarter billion uh, trillion dollars. Excuse me, uh, it's really fairly stunning. With the stock up another one percent, and then even Facebook, which I would argue the story really has been as this year has gone on, a more negative one with each passing month, and yet the stock has done extraordinarily well because the business continues to hang in there despite yeah. the concerns I think that Facebook is raising whether it comes to privacy or whether it comes, obviously, to the political discourse in the country. Well, remember, it was, it was about a year ago when these stocks plunged, Facebook in particular. And I believe it was primarily over the regulatory environment and regulatory concerns and, you know, legitimate concerns that, you know, the way it was affecting elections, the privacy issues, could they fix it? But I think what we've seen this year is that none of those concerns really hit the bottom line. That, you know, maybe Facebook users are worried about these things, but they're still using Facebook. The numbers are incredible. The revenue streams are incredible. And so there was that huge sell-off, and then there's been an equally large recovery this year. Um, I think Apple was not so caught up in the regulatory issues, but it was dragged down by all of that. But And, you know, concerns that it was tapping out the growth rate of the, of the iPhone. But I really think what Apple has succeeded is part of that long-term vision of theirs. It's created this ecosystem of products. And once you've got the laptop, the phone, I mean, you're going to be drawn increasingly into, the, into this. The question is, how can they further exploit that ecosystem? And I think there's probably a lot of potential there. A remarkable chart, obviously. 282 now and change. Uh, Wedbush today, you saw Dan Ives on our air earlier this morning, uh, going to 350 now from 325. 
uh, remarkable after having been doubted by many uh, in the first half of the year. So Dow's up 98, uh, S&P 30, 224. By the way, I want to mention uh, S&P's enjoying its best year since 2013. But if we can get to 3249, which is another 25 points, we got to go back to 97, as we said the other day. Yeah. Uh, wow. 20. 23 years ago. Man, how could it be? Yeah, I, I've been wondering. Thank you. Because I've seen 97, I've seen 2010 and 2013, all very strong years. So we're right in there, certainly. But uh, few expected, given especially where we were a year ago, that we would see a 28% plus gain at this point. Uh, but here we are. Yeah, I remember last Christmas. Remember Christmas Eve? I, I think it was the worst Christmas Eve in the market ever. It was, uh, it was hard. To, if you're an investor, it's a little Oof. bit hard to be super cheerful. This time, uh, the holiday, but we've got a lot to celebrate this year. Uh, this time last year, it was really four sessions where the S and P dropped almost eight yeah. percent, leading into Christmas Eve, yeah. which was a shortened session. So it reminded me again, you know, it's it's it always astonishes me is when stocks are down and they're cheap that people come to me and say, should I be selling? And it's when they're high and they're expensive, saying I want to buy. But I remember last Christmas, especially, you know, you get together with family. Everybody was saying, oh, my God, I'm feeling maybe I should sell. I'm getting worried. It's, it's going to go down further. And I kept saying, no, 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 no. This is the time. Take a deep breath. St- sit tight at the very least. Yeah, you always have that advice in terms of stick with your plan and yes. don't deviate. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Bob Pisani is watching the movers for us today. Good morning, Bob. Slowly advancing, uh, 80% of the Dow's gain is, is Boeing, as you noted here. Just take a look at the sectors. It looks a lot like the fourth quarter t- uh, today because there's semiconductors, what sector of the year, what we're moving uh, up 60%. Home builders flattish right now. Another great group up 40% for the year, even though uh, rates have been moving up. China's had a great rally, China shares, MCHI, uh, since uh, optimism on the trade talks a f- couple of weeks ago. Industrials up, and a lot of this is, is Boeing here. Of course, Boeing up about 3%. Uh, put up Boeing and some of the suppliers around Boeing, Spirit, Senior, General Electric, and Safran, of course, making the engines here. All rallies in the, uh, in, let's call them the Boeing stocks, essentially. Uh, you were talking about how things were looking compared to last year. Jim was mentioned as December. Boy, what a mess here. Remember, this started here uh, on December 5th when the president, this is last year, said he was tariff man. Market started drifting lower. Then we hit December 19th. That's when the Fed started uh, uh, hiking rates. Three or four days in a row, we moved to the bottom December 24th. By that time, we were down close to 15% for the month. We did rally a little bit, closed off of the lows. But worst December 24th ever. Jim's right about that. Just take a look at the last couple of years. It was a common refrain in the fourth quarter, the beginning of the fourth quarter, that we've really gone essentially nowhere since January of 2018 and the markets have been flat. That's not the case anymore here. This really started in the fourth quarter here, the beginning of October. That's when the Fed started injecting liquidity into the system. Don't call it QE, I know, but October 11th, the market started really moving here. And it's clear that if you Think of the factors that have led to this fourth quarter rally moving to new highs. The Fed injecting liquidity is one part of that whole question. Just take a look here. So we have more liquidity from the Fed. We have tariff trade war truce hopes. And we have some hopes on the bottom of the global economy. A little bit more clarity, not a lot, but a little more clarity. And you put that together, you've got a very powerful stew that moves the markets up. And you can argue even for a higher multiple on a global market bottom here. S&P 500 for the year up 28%. I keep arguing that this is 
Very much a super cap rally. The biggest stocks have really moved the market. The top 10 are up 40%. The top 10 is about 23% of the S&P 500. That's on the high side, although it's not unusual to be over 20%. Just take a look. And uh, you guys were talking about Apple so much. Uh, your biggest stocks in the year, Apple. These are the top five. Apple's up 77%. Microsoft, 55 Alphabet, up 30%. And if you look at Amazon, the only stock below the S&P is Amazon. And Facebook up 57%. When you've got four of the top five up 40, 50%, that's going to move the markets to new highs. Guys, back to you. Yep, no doubt about that, Bob. Thank you. All right, let's, uh, let's get a check on the fixed income markets and head over to Rick Santelli at the CME in Chicago. Rick. Good morning, David. Let's look at a 24-hour of 10. You see it was hit coming into our time zone. Look at a one week. And you can really see how we stall. We have a real tough ceiling to get through in the mid-190s. And if you look at an intraday of Boone's, it looks like it was firming up a bit, but a two-day gives you the reality, similar to our long maturity treasury, that particular global sovereign, like many, also is running up against near-term resistance. But it's been trading quite firm. Finally, if we look at the dollar index, it's up a little bit right now. The one-week chart shows a nice steady climb. It's hovering just uh, below uh, 97 and three quarters right now, which means for 2019 thus far, dollar index up one and a half percent. At one point, it was up double that. It really did have a nasty November. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Jim, that was great. It was fun, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, I looked at the news. It's supposed <laughs> to be Christmas week. Join us for the first time on the night and no commercial breaks. None. Let's keep it going, though, man. It's going to be an interesting week. But we're going to be here for it, Carl. Jim Stewart, thanks so much. Thank you. you. Pleasure. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt, or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 
From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 